The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 18th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Steve Bannon is out of the White House. He is houseless. He is homeless. That explains the appearance. Steve Bannon was a crafty, though immoral, strategist, an enabler of Trump's worst instincts, a rabble-rouser of the worst order, and a pox. Just a free-floating, generalized pox. He looked like the kind of guy that one of Trump's doormen would shoo to the curb. He acted towards neo-Nazis like a Pentecostal snake handler acts towards asps and adders, and he thought like someone who was a little too fascistic for Mussolini. It's true. Julius Avola. That guy was his inspiration. Also Mussolini's inspiration. It's good that Steve Bannon's gone. It's worse that he was ever there. It's uncertain about what will happen in his wake. Trump promoted John Kelly to chief of staff, and he has at least retained Madison McMaster. He... On the other hand, brought in Lewandowski in an official capacity. He hired then fired Scaramucci within a week. He has since elevated Hope Hicks to take Scaramucci's old job. The good, or let's say good-ish, you know, sane, somewhat smart, qualified people within the administration, people like Gary Cohn or Elaine Chow, they all started out with him at a time when it seemed like the man might rise to the office rather than the office being turned into a colossal septic tank by the man. So Bannon's addition by subtraction, but the equation is still far, far in the negative. If Bannon is gone, who will take space in Trump's limbic lobes? Because I'm not even going to pretend that there's anything going on in the prefrontal cortex because that dictates self-control, focus, and planning. Is it going to be Jared? Jared's on vacation too much. Is it going to be more of General Kelly? That image we have of him despondently shaking his head as his boss angrily re-adjudicates the lessons of the Civil War in front of a bank of elevators inside a gilded tower. There's no one. There are no good people left. There are no good people to draw from. There's only Trump. And he's driven by the need for adulation and approval from moment to moment. He booked a big rally in Arizona next week. And if the crowd is full of the 36% of Americans who still admit to pollsters they approve of Trump, that'll satisfy him for a little bit. Though in one or two weeks, if Breitbart turns on him, will Trump be able to pack an arena without all those angry Bannonites? Or maybe Bannon and Trump will stay in contact through back channels. Trump, fearful of the wrath of Bannon. Bannon, happy to keep exerting influence, but liberated in that he could now hiss into the leader's ear, free from the restriction on cargo shorts. On the show today, I spiel about the other celebrity who Trump's been reminding me of. But first, let's just escape this year. You know, in 1982, Ronald Reagan's approval ratings weren't that much higher than Trump's are right now. He was in the low 40s. But you know what got him through? It was that he improved the national mood. He made Americans believe in themselves. Now, that doesn't seem that difficult a task when you realize what was playing in the background in 1982. I of the Tiger. I love rock and roll. Ebony and Ivory. So let's go back to those halcyon days with Chris Malamphy. Because we learn to live when we learn to give each other what we need to survive together alive. So very true.
1982 was a time of great strife. Uh, Just in June of that year, a war in Lebanon and a war in the Falklands. Spoiler alert, one had more casualties than the other, not counting sheep. Plane crashed into the Potomac River and Ronald Reagan was riding high in approval, cutting taxes. But you know what else was riding high? Well, Olivia Newton-John, the Jay Giles Band, and uh, Lionel Richie. Of course, Lionel Richie, because in 1982, the number one singles were encapsulating what MTV was foisting upon the culture. Chris Malamphy is here. He is the author of the Why Is That Song number one column on Slate. But even more importantly for our purposes, he's the guy behind the hit parade, uh, which is a Slate podcast that takes uh, a trend in music and really talks about it quite a lot, quite interestingly. Like, what's the latest hit parade? Uh, the latest hit parade is an episode about um, the history of the charity mega single, uh, like We Are the World or Band-Aids, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, that kind of thing. Yeah, or the metal one. Or the metal one, Hearing Aid, yeah, yeah. lest we forget Hearing Aid. Hearing Aid. Chris, hello, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. How are you? Good. Let's start the year with, I think, a song we talked about uh, in, 19, in our 1981 discussion. We did. That would be- So, Chris, let's get physical. Yeah, that would be Physical by Olivia Newton-John. The only reason we need to mention Physical one more time is that it was number one for so dang long. It was number one for 10 weeks. This was at a time when singles didn't spend that many weeks atop the charts that it was the number one song of 1982. Physical was just an enormous culture-dominating hit. But it was number one just for like about four or five more weeks in January of 82. And then it gives way to some other hits. It gave way to Daryl Hall and John Oates. I can't go for that. Yeah, no which I would say is probably uh, by a hair the my favorite song song of the number one hits of 1982. I Can't Go For That is uh, Hall & Oates' second consecutive number one hit from the Private Eyes album. You and I talked about Private Eyes in our 1981 segment. Mm -hmm. Um, But I Can't Go For That has a really sleek influential sound it's an amazing record it not only topped the hot 100 this is remarkable at a time when this very rarely happened it topped the r&b chart uh it was enormously popular with black and white audiences and uh it's a song that's been sampled endlessly in hip-hop and it's mostly because of that just amazing bass line and keyboard combination, which one last note, uh, Michael Jackson later admitted that he basically stole this bass line for the song Billie Jean a year later. Oh my so, God. Yeah. If you play the two songs side by side, they're not identical, but they're extremely close. All right, let's go. Uh, let's, we're counting down the hits. Jay Giles Band, Centerfold. Jay Giles Band, uh, they've been through, a, they had been even up to that point, been through a couple iterations. They were like uh, straight ahead roots rockers and Centerfold was very poppy and... And also, they've been around for a while, even in '82. They had. They were. They were a band dating back to the '70s, basically a Boston-based band, uh, fronted not by Jay Giles. It's nope. an important detail. The <laughs> band is named after the guitarist, who, by the way, just passed away this year. He passed away in April. Jay Giles. And in the '70s, they were kind of an R&B-based boogie rock band, known for hits like "Must Have Got Lost." Um, but then they basically, like a lot of the acts we'll talk about today, caught a wave with MTV with the song "Centerfold," and the music video features. 
um, attractive nubile women in various states of undress. Mostly negligees. No, mostly negligees yeah. cavorting around Peter Wolf uh, in a classroom. In a classroom. Yeah. Also, isn't that is that is it that or freeze frame where there is a shot of uh, drum skin and the drummer goes to play it, but it's milk. I believe that is also centerfold. Oh, I believe that's all so in the that's same video. That's why this song deserves to be. It's number the drum one. that's milk. I like this era because next up is uh, Long Island's own Joan Jett with I Love Rock and Roll. A little trivia for you. Uh, are you aware that this is a, a cover by a fairly small band called The Arrows? And it was it first came out yeah, in 1975. Yeah. It was originally a B-side for them, not a hit. And then she, in 1981, re-recorded it and really toughened it up. And she changed the gender of who she was singing about. Sure. I saw him, saw him standing yeah, there by the, the record machine. Her, yeah. Exactly. And uh, again, it, it it kind of wrote a MTV popularity and, and Joan's just sort of badass attitude uh, to the, the top of the charts. It was a huge, huge hit. It spent uh, uh, nearly two months on top of the Hot 100. Uh, Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. The theme to Chariots of Fire is next. I love this song. I can play this song on piano. I can too. <laughs> I, I used to pick this out when I was in, gosh, what, sixth grade? Uh, so Chariots of Fire, by the way, is one of four number one hits in 1982 that are from a movie. This is the easy one to figure out because, of course, it's from the movie Chariots of Fire, which that spring in kind of an upset one best picture at the Oscars. Not a lot of people saw it coming. When, when you talk to Oscarologists, Academy followers, they say that Chariots of Fire winning the 1981 Oscar for best picture was not something a lot of people saw Who, coming. Who was it up against? It was Reds up against Raiders, Re of the Reds, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, Reds by that Warren Beatty year. actually yeah. won best director for Warren Beatty. And yet Chariots of Fire was sort of this, this come from behind upset winner, not unlike a runner running along the beach, which mm -hmm. is the most indelible image of the movie Chariots of Fire. And that uh, burbling synthesized score by Vangelis. It's of its time, and yet n there weren't too many other hits that sounded like this. It's an instrumental, by the way, which is one of very few instrumentals in the 1980s, one of the last to go to number one. Uh, other than this, in, in 1985, the Miami Vice theme, there really are no other big hit instrumentals in this decade. Now, we are dealing, sometimes we deal with uh, years where there are so many number ones they cycle through, but we're dealing with big songs. Like, of the ones we mentioned, right. Centerfold basically dominated for five weeks, and mm -hmm. I Love Rock and Roll six for weeks, five I or think. six yeah. weeks. Uh -huh, right. uh -huh. Same with Ebony and Ivory. Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect Ebony and Ivory was number one for, again, I think about seven weeks and, yeah. and, and an enormous hit record. This, of course, is a duet between two of the very biggest stars in all of music, Paul McCartney, who wrote the song, and Stevie Wonder. Uh, it is uh, one of Stevie Wonder's last number one hits. He has a couple more in the 80s uh, after this one, but this is uh, a really big one, and it was something that Paul actually wrote for himself for his uh, Tug of War album, and it was only after he wrote it that he realized, well, if I'm writing a song about racial harmony, which, by the way, those of you who haven't followed yet, Ebony and Ivory like the keys on the piano. It's literally in the lyric. Living He's in perfect harmony. Living in perfect harmony. It's a very cheesy, schlocky song, but Paul realized that as long as I'm singing Singing about, you know, living in perfect racial harmony. I yeah. might as well have a second person singing this song with me, and it might as well be Stevie Wonder. Uh, the Human League. The Human League. Don't you want me, baby? Yeah, I would say if I were to pick a record that is most important among all these number one hits in terms of signaling uh, a trend shift 
Yes. Don't you want me is absolutely it. First of all, it's got it's got long legs. I still hear "Don't you want me" on the radio, um, but it is the moment when MTV-driven British new wave finally crosses over. Remember, this is before Duran Duran have had hits in America. This is before Culture Club. This is before Tears for Fears. What's interesting about "Don't you want me" in particular is that it's an extremely um, slick, professional-looking music video. It, you, it's it's designed with uh, the, the video is integral to the presentation of the song. By the way, Human League had already been uh, scoring hits in Britain for a couple of years, and Don't You Want Me was not even the first single from the album Dare, which is widely regarded as Human League's best album. It was the fourth single taken from the album in Britain. It was a song that Phil Oakey, their leader, didn't even like. He thought it was filler. He thought it was an album cut. But... It's an important record because this is before Duran Duran, before Culture Club, before Tears for Fears. It's a record that inaugurates British synthesizer New Wave on the charts, which is going to dominate the charts for the next three or four years. And Human League got there first, and it's because the music video is shot on film very expensively, looks slick, looks professional. It looked like what MTV was now going to become. Uh, Rising up back on the street, traded his passion for glory. We're talking about Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. Survivor were, uh, you know, sort of a, a journeyman band that had been knocking around for a while, and then they got lucky enough to record the theme to Rocky Three, yeah, which was uh, the big summer blockbuster of 1982. Uh, the so- the phrase "Eye of the Tiger" is actually a line in the movie. Yeah, I and think maybe uh, it's almost a plot point. It really is. You <laughs> yeah. you have to have the Eye of the Tiger. Uh, punctuated with a brief interstitial of Chicago's heart, Sam. Sorry, we have. Just about the worst song or the worst lyric ever committed to paper <laughs> or vinyl. Steve Miller bands Abracadabra. I want to reach out and grab you. It's pretty bad. Um, Abracadabra. Black Panties with an Angel's Face is almost as bad, and that's also in the song. Let me give you a little credit here, Mike, which is that you have the same instincts as Steve Miller's record label. Steve Miller's record label heard this song and they said, this is garbage. And they had had no interest in releasing it. It was Steve Miller who convinced them, I'm telling you, this is a hit. I believe it got released in Europe first and was a hit there before they brought it and made it a hit in America. And it was seriously probably his biggest chart hit. It it only spent two weeks at number one, but it spent something like three or four or five months in the top ten. And it's it's it is kind of a very current sounding record as as schlocky as it is. It's yeah. it's 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 a synth based record. It's it's got kind of a a poppy clappy you know uh, MTV edge to it. So you know, give Steve Miller points for uh, remaining current even after his seventies heyday. John Cougar, then as John Cougar, no yes. Mellencamp, no Mellencamp yet. Little story about Jack and Diane. Yes, one of two enormous hits from John Cougar from the American Fool album, which remains, to my knowledge, with Scarecrow, one of his two biggest albums. And he was still called John Cougar back then. Yeah. He was Johnny Cougar when he started. But Jack and Diane, far and away, remain, remains, you know, his karaoke classic. I mean, if, if you're going to hear that on anything from John Cougar, Mellencamp or Cougar, you're probably going to hear Jack and Diane. Oh, yeah. Life goes on. Hey, Men at Work comes next. Who can it be now? Is this what about what about Down Under? That's what I know. Down for. Under goes to number one uh, in 1983. So okay. basically, Men at Work have two number one hits, one at the end of 82, one at the beginning of 83. Who can it be 
this kicks off an enormous period for Men at Work. Men at Work uh, had an album called Business as Usual, which had first come out in Australia. They are an Australian band. They finally break through in America in late 82 with Who Can It Be Now with that immortal saxophone line. It's probably the most memorable thing about it. And they their album Business as Usual goes to number one in America and sits there for, I swear to God, 15 weeks. It was a huge, huge hit. It goes sextuple platinum, spins off that and the hit Down Under. Uh, followed immediately by the album Cargo, several more hits, like for about a year and a half, except for, you know, bands like The Police. Men at Work were just about the biggest band on the charts, crazily enough. So you mentioned there were four songs from movies that went to number one. So here's the last one, Up Where We Belong, from yes. Officer and a Gentleman. And out of all of them, this is the one that wins the Oscar next year for best song from a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from An Officer and a Gentleman. Uh, it, that movie also won Lou Gossett Jr. a Best Supporting Actor right. Oscar. Uh, and uh, that's the movie starring Richard Gere and Deborah Winger. This song is uh, not unlike the pairing of Winger and Gere, a male-female duet sung by Jennifer Warrens and Joe Cocker. Uh, Jennifer Warrens had scored uh, her first top 10 hit way back in uh, 1977 with Right Time of the Night. Uh, Joe Cocker, I mean, man, if anybody remembers Woodstock... Uh, or, you know, early 70s. Joe Cocker has this kind of manic delivery. He, he is a, a one-of-a-kind British R&B singer. Um, so Joe Cocker has an interesting all-over-the-place kind of career, and then he scores the biggest hit of his career in 82 in this duet with Jennifer Warnes on this very romantic, uh, sappy ballad from uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. Okay, so the last three number one hits of the year. Truly, Mickey Maneater. We've done a little Hall and & Oates, and uh, maybe that covers Maneater. Lionel Richie, now, this was, what, first first single after the Commodores, truly? Uh, Yes, first solo single, although, man, you want to talk about a guy who dropped breadcrumbs leading up to his solo debut. Lionel Richie had been with the Commodores for, I believe, more than a decade. He'd written other hits for other people. He had a number one hit in 1980 with Lady, which he wrote for Kenny Rogers. Mm -hmm. In 1981, he'd scored a duet number one hit with Diana Ross, Endless Love. If I'm being honest, it's probably his least memorable big hit, but you can tell by the fact that Truly went to number one that there was just pent-up demand for a Lionel Richie solo album at this point. He'd been leading up to this for just so many years. Uh, Tony Bay Basil's Mickey, she's a big choreographer. Yes, who, and uh, a video artist. And yeah. a video artist, and, and this song was cl- clearly helped by the cheerleader video on MTV. I'll go further than that. It wouldn't have existed if it hadn't been for the video, quite literally, because um, Tony Basil had no interest per se in being a pop star. Uh, she had been doing video art, I believe, since the late 60s. Uh, she's like a Bill Viola type. She, she She's a contemporary artist who, whose medium is video. And she was putting together a standalone music video called Word of Mouth that had various vignettes and, and pieces of music. And she basically recorded Mickey 
to be the accompaniment to a cheerleader sequence that she wanted to put in her video. And it caught on. The The video actually, I believe, even predated MTV. I think it came out in 1980 or 81. And then finally, belatedly, this song became an enormous hit in both England and America, uh, largely on the strength of the video. So, I mean, if, if we're talking about MTV and how MTV made hits, this is something that literally began its life as a video rather than as a record and then became an enormous radio hit. All right, 1982. Now, often we end and we talk about, well, what's the theme of the year? I'm getting a few themes. The importance of MTV. Yep. We've mentioned MTV probably. We, we haven't even mentioned a record company or a record label, but we've mentioned MTV a lot of times. Absolutely. And also bringing in, sometimes there are transition years. I don't know if this is that, but we see the Human League, a little synth pop. Yes, I the Human see... League is, is the transition there. Yeah. yeah. Chris Malanfi is the author of the Why Is the Song Number One column for Slate. And also check out Hit Parade. He does what he does here, but with one song or trend, and uh, he does it quite nicely. Thank you, Chris. Excellent job, as always. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it. And now the spiel. So talk of Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and Julius Avola leads inevitably to one person. I know you know who I'm thinking of. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, there he was, right on Breitbart today. Headline, with Steve Bannon gone, Donald Trump risks becoming Arnold Schwarzenegger 2.0. All right, the parallels are there. They're celebrity politicians. Both actually would host the Celebrity Apprentice. They were elected in surprises. Breitbart explains more. Quote, after struggling with intense media criticism and after losing a key referendum on reforms to state government, Schwarzenegger gave up on his agenda and abandoned the political base that brought him into office. He reinvented himself as a liberal, embracing policies such as California's controversial cap-and-trade program, which had zero effect on climate change, but chased business jobs and middle-class families out of state. All right, that's the Breitbart sheen to Breitbart. Everything that Schwarzenegger did afterwards was failed. He was reelected. They do note that. But yeah, I I will agree that Schwarzenegger didn't have a glorious tenure as governor of California. So that was out there. Schwarzenegger was in my mind. But then he showed up again today on Twitter because the man himself put out a video decrying Nazis. The only way to beat the loud and angry voices of hate is to meet them with louder and more reasonable voices. And that includes you, President Trump. In fact, as president of this great country, you have a moral responsibility to send an unequivocal message that you won't stand for hate and racism. It's pretty pro forma stuff, not that different from what a lot of politicians or former politicians in Schwarzenegger's case have said. But Schwarzenegger's message, perhaps it's a bit more effective in speaking directly to potential right-wing recruits themselves. Because A, Schwarzenegger is an alpha male, so potential Nazis like that. And B, Schwarzenegger's father was a Nazi, right? Gustav Schwarzenegger, an Austrian policeman who applied for membership and was accepted into the Nazi party in the early 1940s. Researchers found no evidence that the elder Schwarzenegger committed war crimes, but he was eager to join the Nazis even after their horrific misdeeds became clear. But maybe it's just because Schwarzenegger wasn't the son of who he was the son of, but just an Austrian living at the time that he lived, that his message carries some weight. You're supporting a lost cause. And believe me, I know the original Nazis. I was born in Austria in 1947, shortly after the Second World War. And growing up, I was surrounded by broken men, 
Men who came home from the war filled with shrapnels and guilt. Men who were misled into a losing ideology. And I can tell you that these ghosts that you idolize spent the rest of their lives living in shame. And right now, they're resting in hell. Schwarzenegger, as Breitbart noted, is a failed politician. But he seems to have evolved into a better person than when he started. The issue that motivates him, the one he works on every day, is ending gerrymandering. I know. In fact, I was listening to an interview with Schwarzenegger conducted by The Economist magazine, and it struck me that given the right issue, a kind of Donald Trump-esque argument could work. Listen, here's Schwarzenegger. He's talking about many defeats, four defeats legislatively, in fact, on the gerrymandering issue and the question of, well, whether he should just give up. I come from the weightlifting background. I said, I don't try to lift a certain weight four times and then I give up and then we'll try again. I said, I tried, I remember the bench press. I said, I tried 10 times and I failed. And I said, the 11th time at the German powerlifting championships, I did it. I said, so I said, you never give up. And that is, for me, I've learned in, in sports, you just never, ever give up. And, uh, and that's exactly, you know, what, what we did. We continued on and we put it again on the ballot and we raised again money. And then eventually it happened. Now, if this were Donald Trump talking about the Wallman rink or the success of The Apprentice, I might chafe. I might say, politics ain't real estate. Stop saying your new job is just like your old job. But when Schwarzenegger makes all these bodybuilding references to justify his fight to reform gerrymandering, I reacted a little differently. Was it because I was already on board with the issue? Well, maybe. But also, I have to allow that that's probably just how Schwarzenegger sees the world. Also, maybe it's tactical. You know, he talks this way so listeners can't help but reflect on his great accomplishments. The fact that he actually did accomplish things gives him credibility. Donald Trump lied a lot, but it's not like he didn't connect with voters on economic issues, not just white grievance issues. Also, I think Trump may be incapable of making a complex argument. I didn't get that sense with Schwarzenegger, who in his talk with The Economist went on to say that gerrymandering is not an impossible reform. That, as with fitness, we shouldn't come to believe we're defeated before we even start. Of all the horrors of Donald Trump, one, maybe small one, seemed to be that his elevation would usher in an era of unqualified celebrity candidates. Hello, Kid Rock. But maybe this doesn't have to be such a bad thing. Or maybe the key factor in the dishonest celebrity-driven appeal of Donald Trump's not the celebrity, it's the dishonesty. And if Arnold Schwarzenegger is a celebrity with a showman's flair, then Donald Trump was Arnold Schwarzenegger on steroids, which is saying something since Arnold Schwarzenegger won all his Mr. Universe competitions on steroids. Also, let us watch for how the fight against gerrymandering goes, even more so than building a wall or funding infrastructure, using a legislature to reform the way that the currently elected legislators came to power. That is a hard lift. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Mary Wilson and Dan Schrader. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Now, I rushed through those names because I wanted to get to Chris Berube, who is leaving us. When Chris first started working on the gist, Donald Trump was a less plausible candidate than Jeb Bush, and Christian Freeland was just Minister of International Trade. Now, look at all that's changed. The U.S. is in the shitter, and Chris is out of here. 
Fantastic. The gist will miss Chris's excellent editing, his keen ear, his sharp eye for subject matter, his calm, soothing influence, like all those times he talked me out of saying things that would offend great swaths of the audience. I've known Chris or known of Chris for many years. I was eager to get him on board, and now I am sad to see him go. Let us play Chris out to the tune of a great Mariah Carey song as interpreted by a stellar artist. It's Chris Berube himself from his own going away karaoke party last night. Chris Berube, it has indeed been a sweet, sweet fantasy. I do think we belong together. It's a heartbreaker to be without you. Bye-bye. Don't forget about us. The gist. I don't want to cry. Experiencing so many emotions. And thank you, Chris, for deciding not to touch my body. Oomperu, deperu, duperu. And thanks for listening.